Well, we are going to pick up where we left off last week. We started a new series last week called Meeting Jesus at the Feast. And what it is, is it's going through the different festivals that are celebrated every year in Israel. They've been doing this for a long time. But showing how Christ fulfilled these or will fulfill these and how these all point to him. After the last year of going through the entire Old Testament, of finding Jesus in the Old Testament in the Emmaus Road series, that now we're going to get into this. And I separated this specifically because this deserves its own thing. There's just so much here. Um, and today, go ahead and go to that next slide. These are the, the different feasts. There's the spring holidays and there's the fall ones. You've got Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Then you get the one that's kind of in the middle, which is Pentecost, and then you get in the fall holidays. Now, Jesus has fulfilled these right here. When he returns, he'll fulfill those. We're going to talk today about Passover. And as I said, here in a couple of weeks on the 9th, that Brian Young's going to be here. Some of you guys know him, maybe you don't. He's, he's from Creation Instruction Association, he travels all over the country uh, teaching. And he, he, one of the things that he does is he puts on these Seder meals, which is exactly the Passover dinner. It's, it's, it's what they do. And when you sit through it and you watch what happens, it'll just, it's just mind-blowing of how Christ fulfilled every little detail to the bread, to how the bread looks, to just everything. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then you're going to sit there and wonder, like, how on earth have the people of Israel missed this the entire time? It's absolutely mind-blowing. So I, I encourage you to be here. It's absolutely free. Um, we, the church has taken care of all the cost involved in it. We just ask you to bring something with you. Uh, that way we can, because lamb is not cheap. And so we want, we just want to be a blessing. We want you guys to see and experience this. And so before we get into this today, I want to, I want to look at where we're going. Okay. We, we started kind of an overview of what these things are. And remember that Paul talks about in several uh, different passages that these things were written down for our edification, for our learning, that we we can look back and see something. And we talked about all the different types and shadows and the different use of languages in Scripture. Because the thing we got to remember about the Bible is it's not a book. It is 66 books. It's got 40 authors written over a 2,000-year span. And yet Jesus is at the heart of all of it. He's really at the center. And these are no different than that. And so when we get into Passover and we start looking about this, we've got to go back into the book of Exodus because this is where Passover is initiated. Okay, so we're going to start in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And I put these up there last week, and we've got them fixed this week, so they actually make some sense. But what happens here is that this is what they were running on. The month of Tishri was the first month. When they got here to the seventh month, that's when God changed it. And now, from here on out, Nisan, from the religious calendar, is now the first month, or Aviv. Nisan is actually the Babylonian name. And that's the name that it took on when they were in the Babylonian captivity. But you see Tishri here. So these aren't just different names, they're just in a different order. You can see how they correspond with one another. And so he said, now this is going to be the first month of you. This is the beginning. It's a new beginning that's about to take place. Because when they're here, they are in Egypt. They are under bondage. They're in slavery. And he's getting ready to change Pharaoh's heart, essentially. They are going to be set free. Because you guys know the story of the ten plagues. That is what's been going on. And he's getting into the Passover. We're going into the tenth plague. And we'll talk about that in depth in a little bit. But the seventh month has now become the first month. Okay? That's why he says this. Here we go. Verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. 
according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So, on the 10th of the month, Nisan 10th would be what we would consider January 10th and, and, and the way we look at it. Nisan is actually kind of between March and April. But they would bring this lamb in. They would pick it. It has to be perfect. Can't have any spots, any blemishes. Can't, it can't have a hair. This thing has to be absolutely perfect. And then they would bring this lamb into their home for four days. And think about what that would be because at the 14th, they're examining it this whole time. They're looking at it, making sure this is perfect. It's got to be perfect. I mean, if there's any flaw, it does not count. It has to be perfect. I cannot stress that enough. And so for four days, it would make it harder for the family to sacrifice this. Why? What happens in four days when you bring a cute little lamb into the house? He's a pet. You name him. He's no longer livestock. He's fluffy. I mean, picture you bring home a puppy. And say, all right, kids, we're going to keep it for four days. But at the end of four days, we're going to eat it. That's weird. Okay, sorry. Bad analogy. Tough crowd. Here we go. So, but it would make it harder on them, right? I mean, because obviously, you bring it in the house, the kids are going to get close. They just would think that way. And then at twilight, they would kill it. Now, twilight to them is different than twilight to us. Because you got to remember that they ran their days from sundown to sundown. That's the 24-hour period that they run. What do we do? Midnight to midnight. Midnight, 12.01 a.m. starts the new day. For them, it was different. 6 p.m. started the new day, essentially, right in that range, whatever sun went down. So twilight for them was roughly 3 p.m. or the ninth hour of the day, right? Because they would run from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So we're right in that, that time frame. Verse 7, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. Now here's the thing. It wasn't enough to just kill the lamb. And it wasn't just enough to consume the lamb. But they had to do something with that blood. They had to put it on the doorpost. Okay? So the lentil's the top, the doorpost to the side, that's what they had to do with it. And then he said they would consume the lamb with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Now, I'm not going to go into all the detail of that because when you come to that Seder meal, Brian is going to go in detail of what that is signifying, okay? So I'm going to leave out some of those things just because we're about to do this. And it's better for you to see it live, essentially, than me to try to explain it to you, okay? All right, let's look at verse 10. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So it all had to be gone. You eat everything. It's all got to go. And if it's not, what do you do? You burn it. Now morning, what's morning? 6 p.m., start of the new day. It's a completely different system, so don't let that confuse you. So anyway, that is when they would do it. So this thing, but they had to have their sandals on. They had to do it in haste. They had to be ready. They had to be prepared to go. That's what it was. That's what it signified. Let's look at verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. 
both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, here's the deal. Remember, we're getting into that 10th plague, okay? I'm assuming that you guys at least are familiar with the other ones, and we'll, we'll talk about those just in a moment. But, but here it is. God, Yahweh, is going to come through the land, and he's going to execute judgment on them. And if he's going to go, he's going to kill the firstborn child, firstborn animal. For every household, except where the blood is applied, okay? Judgment is coming. Now, I have watched, um, I have watched several people try to scientifically figure this out, that out of the water comes this gas bubble that went through the land, and it, that's how it killed the firstborn. Well, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know how much you know about gas, but it is not, it doesn't differentiate between firstborn and everybody. So it's not like, you know, there's a carbon monoxide leak in your house, and oh, only my firstborn died, you know? I mean, that's just not how it works. So anyway, so this is the hand of God, and he's passing judgment. But look what it says. It says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Now, that's something that often gets overlooked. Because often what we talk about, it's against Pharaoh, against his hard heart. That's not what it says here. It says, I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, because I am the Lord. That's interesting. That's a very interesting statement. In Exodus chapter 7 and verse 5, this kind of gives us the reason. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. He's making a, a, a theological statement. Because here, they worship a plethora of gods. And all of these ten plagues are God showing him the Egyptian, that I am the Lord over their other gods. And they have a lot of them. In fact, here are the ten plagues. I even threw the Hebrew letters up there for you, in case you wanted to read that. Isn't that nice? Boy, that's fancy. Now, every one of these, guys, has to do with one or multiple gods of Egypt. The blood in, in the Nile, the frogs. I mean, they worshipped the Nile, and the Nile was the source of life. And so blood being in there was signifying that there is one greater in that river. Every one of these goes against God. And I don't have time to go into all of these because we would be here all day long to go into every one of these. But we will look at this, the very last one, because there were four gods affected in this plague. The first one is the god men, and I've got kind of a picture there. He's the guy on the right here that you can kind of see right there. That's him, okay? He was the god of procreation and reproduction. But it was, the, it was the firstborn that died anyway, right? Procreation, reproduction, makes sense, right? We can see that. The second one was the goddess named Isis, who was the goddess of procreation and reproduction. He's taking out the firstborn of all things. They worship these gods in order to have children. And by worshiping these gods, they would sacrifice to them, and they would kill things in children, as well as many other things. Third one is Hathor, if I'm saying this right. It was a goddess who was present at the birth of a child. So they believed that this was here. This god was in the room when they were having the child. And it was a way of blessing and, and that they would protect the firstborn. And yet here is God, Yahweh, the true God. I am the Lord who is showing them, no, you ain't got nothing on me. Fourthly, is Apis was a bull. It was the firstborn bull, the sacred one. Okay. 
I mean, you, you got all of these things. It, it's just pointing to it. And all of these guys, I'd, I'd encourage you to go home and spend some time studying that out because now it begins to make more sense. We always, we're learning these, especially if you had the flannel graphs and all of that when you were a kid, you know, in church and stuff, and they throw the little locust up and, you know, all that other kind of stuff. I mean, we, we just assume that these are random acts, but these are specific. These are intentional. He's showing the Egyptians that I am the Lord. What did he tell uh, Moses when he was in the room? Tell him that I am sent you. It's the same thing. He is making a declaration. He is the Lord. This is a clear statement. There is no God above him. He's going to prove that by pulling them out. Let's go back to verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. First, we see that the blood is a sign. Okay? Right? It's the same word that we looked at last week. It's from oath, O-T-A. This is how it's used. This is how it's used. That's how it's, it's it, all the translations of it. That's the symbolic use or how they use it in different parts. But this sign is the same one that comes from Genesis 1 and verse 14. It says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. Remember how we talked about those signs and seasons. We're not, we always think about the four seasons that we're in, but these are talking about the appointed times. These are pointing, precursors pointing to that, that the moon and everything, and remember they worked on a lunar calendar, was for this purpose. It was to point people to Christ. This is how they knew when to do this. Now, it says, if the blood had been applied, then God would pass over the house, and they would not be subject to the judgment, which is where we get the name Passover. Pretty clever, right? So what happens if they don't apply the blood? If they killed the animal, doesn't matter. They killed the animal and ate them. If they got everything else right, and you're about to see there's more things that they're going to have, if they do everything else right, but they do not apply the blood, it didn't matter. Judgment came. You guys following me? You guys picking up what I'm putting down? I'm kind of pointing you here. Here we go, verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Here's some more things that they had to do. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Boy, that's a lot. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day... There shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we'll talk about next week. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month, at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your house. Since whoever eats this, what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now, we'll get into that more so next week about the unleavened bread and the significance of that. But first of all, it says that this is to be kept as a memorial, right? In other words, every time you do this, you're going to think back to the time at which judgment was coming. But you applied the blood just like I told you. You did everything I told you that you needed to do. 
and therefore you will do this in remembrance of what I've said. Sound familiar? Okay, because that's what he's saying. You will do this in remembrance of the time that I delivered you from the hands of Pharaoh and out of Egypt. Let's look at verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptian, and when he sees the blood on the lintel, on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass that when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when the children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had com commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So he's getting all of this thing. He's telling the people what God told him. This is what we need to do. The first thing is we kill the lamb. Okay, You pick out the lamb, you bring it into your house, and then you're going to kill the lamb. And now he says you're going to take his up, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But notice what it says. It says that you're going to strike the lintel and the two doorposts. Okay? We'll come back to that. So you see the beginning of this. This is how Passover begins. This is the first one. This is starting. Now, when they get into the land, and remember, the land is what was promised to Abraham in the beginning. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to show you the land of which you, your people will. 430 years later, which is exactly the time frame that we're coming on. I mean, it's down to the letter. Okay? In Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, we're going to see this now uh, later on. Observe the month of Abib, which is Nisan. And keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it, that is, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning you may not sacrifice the passover within any of your gates which the lord your god gives you but at the place where the lord your god chooses to make his name abide there you shall sacrifice the passover at twilight at the going down of the sun at the time which you came out of egypt and you shall roast it and eat it in the place which the lord your god chooses and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents six days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day you, there shall be a sacred assembly to the lord your god you shall do no work on it now this is a summary of the order of events in which they're doing it this is later on they're going into the land this is kind of Moses last hurrah before he dies remember he doesn't get to take them into the lamb or into the land not into the lamb that would be weird but take them land. and so he's kind of giving them a summary you're going to do this when you get in there we're going to do Passover again you're going to do it every year but he gives us one more piece of info he says this time you're going to take that lamb out of the gates to a place that will tell you and you will sacrifice the lamb there so you're not going to do it in front of their house anymore they're going to go outside of the gates. Now, Brian is going to go into all the details. So, I, you know, for, for then what I'm going to do here today, because we, again, I would do this over about a month-long period if we, I was going to go into all this. But when you see it, it will make a lot more sense. 
So, especially about the Seder meal itself. But I do want to point out one thing here, uh, just so you kind of aware. I've got a, a picture of the table. Okay, this is what a Seder table looks like. This is kind of how they said it. I don't know if they use the ugly pink tablecloth or not. Uh, I, I suppose that's up for, you know, whatever, whatever color you like. But the thing, you see this different, you're going to see this there, the different plates, the different, uh, the bread, the pillow. I mean, you're going to see all of this stuff here. But what I want to point out are the four cups that are here, okay? They've got one at each side, but there's four cups of wine, and then that's the cup for Elijah. Now, there, these four cups have different names. The first one is called the cup of sanctification. We are brought out from the yoke of slavery. The second one is the cup of deliverance. We are freed by God's judgment of the enemy. The third one is the cup of redemption. We are redeemed by God. And the fourth one is the cup of the kingdom. We are taken as God's people. Now, these are not just random and these are not abstract. They come right out of Exodus chapter 6. So let's look at that. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them. I give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And here's where we get to these cups. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Those four I wills are those four cups that we just talked about. But there's an interesting statement that is made here that often gets passed by, and we, we look at it too closely. In verse 3, it says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. So he appeared to them, right? And we know that because we've been able to read it prior to this. He appears to them. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. Now that's weird. He appeared to them, but he's not known to them. See, that word known is the Hebrew word yada. Yada. You know, if you've ever watched Seinfeld, yada, yada, yada. Okay, no Seinfeld fans, fair enough. But that Hebrew word yada means this intimate or personal knowledge, this experiential thing. So what he's saying is, I appeared to them, but they never really knew me. But then he says... He goes into these four I wills, and then he says at the end of verse 7, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. It's the same word, yada. So by going through these cups, going through this Passover thing, is how you will intimately know who God is. Okay? Now that's significant. we got these four cups. Look at them again. The cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, the cup of the kingdom. All of these things are all significant to Jesus. Now, how did Jesus fulfill all of this? I'll tell you, there is way more than what I'm about to show you. Way more, guys. Every detail of this is, is up for there. But let's look at the beginning. The first thing, in order to have a Passover, what do you need? What's the number one thing that you need? you got to have a lamb, right? And so when we did that, when we were in that last series, the Emmaus Road, we went through what we call progressive revelation, how, how we see that in Genesis 3, 
that we have to have a blood sacrifice of some sort. And then you get to Exodus, you're like, okay, now it's a lamb that we need. And the further you go, the more you begin to understand what this sacrifice is. In Isaiah 53, you realize that that lamb is a person, right? It's not an actual lamb. It's a person that we're waiting for. But then you get into John chapter 1, and all of a sudden, that person has a name. John chapter 1, verse 29. Then the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That declaration was made because now the lamb has a name and that lamb is here. I mean, you think about that. That's just something, again, we read this kind of analogous and we're like, oh, that's cute. He says the lamb of God. No, 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 no. He is telling the people, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the sacrifice. All these years of Passover, he's here. This is him. So you got to have a lamb. That lamb's got a name. That name is Jesus. It's powerful. But the second thing that happens is when you pick out your lamb, what do you do next? You take him into your house. He has to be hidden for four days, right? He's brought into the home, and he's hidden there. Now, what, what you may not know, without going into a ton of backstories, so you're just going to have to take my word for this, is that when Jesus moved into Jerusalem, do you know what day it was? It was the 10th of Nisan. Remember? Four days before Passover, the 10th of Nisan, they would bring the lamb in. And then he's going to go to the temple and the Mount of Olives, and he's going to have the final meal with the disciple all during this time. But the 10th of Nisan is where he moves in. Now let's look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the place, at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, he says in two days. We know that he actually came in two days prior to that. He's right sandwiched in the middle when he makes that statement. He's going to go through a bunch of trials here momentarily over that four-day period. But what about that lamb? So you had to pick the lamb. You had to bring him inside. But while in those four days, what are you doing? You're making sure that lamb is perfect, right? Got to be spotless. During the four days that Jesus is in Jerusalem, he is examined by the chief priests and the elders, by Herod himself, by Annas, who was the high priest, and Caiaphas, the high priest, and ultimately by Pilate, right? We know the story. We've been to Easter before. We've we've, we've experienced all that. But in John chapter 18, with that in mind, let's read this again. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, which is the palace, okay? And it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. See, remember, one of the things that you know, when you, when you study the history of this, is that the Jews underneath the Roman Empire lost the ability to bring uh, corporal punishment, the death penalty, essentially. They could not kill. They had to get Roman permission. That is why they brought him to Pilate. And remember, it was wrong for a Jewish man to enter into the home of a Gentile. And they were already purified for Passover. That's why they didn't go in lest they be defiled and could not partake of the Passover. 
Okay, verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is the truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. You see, he's been examined up one side and down another. Every which way he went to the chief priest, they couldn't find anything to execute him on. In fact, they took him to Pilate, and Pilate's like, why are you bringing him to me? He's like, we didn't bring him. I mean, he's an evildoer. We didn't, wouldn't bring him here if he wasn't. And yet, after examination by Pilate as well, they could find no fault in him at all. That lamb had to be spotless and without blemish. But another thing about that lamb is, excluding the first mention of it, in Deuteronomy, what did it tell us when the lamb had to be killed? What had to happen? They had to go outside of the city gates. You couldn't do it in. You had to go outside of the city gates in order to do that. Well, that's interesting because when you read Hebrews 13, it gives us a little significance here. Hebrews 13 and verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. You know, it's interesting that they didn't just crucify him right then and there. They took him outside the city gates. Again, you see it one time after another. The fulfillment of this Passover by Jesus. But what about the time? What time did they kill the lamb? Twilight. 3 p.m., right? As I said, about the ninth hour. Let's look at Mark 15, starting in verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So how long is that? Three hours, right? It was dark. They didn't have streetlights back then. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabbatani. You can try to pronounce that better if you'd like. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. What time did he die? Ninth hour, 3 p.m. Interesting. One more thing here. The lamb has to have no broken bones, right? It says specifically in there that you're not to break any of his bones. And we see in John 19 when they're, they're getting for the preparation day here in verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. This is different than the regular Saturday Sabbath. This is the high Sabbath. We'll go into that more in detail another time. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They were going to, but they didn't. Now, to kind of land us a little bit today and it, it, to get where we're going here. When the high priest would kill the lamb, he would get up there, he would 
slit the throat of the lamb, and he would say the words, Tetelestai. Tetelestai means it is finished. What did Jesus say when he took his last breath? It is finished. Very good. Now let's look at these four cups again. Because I want to I show you something here. Remember the four cups. You've got the cup of sanctification. We are brought out from the yoke of slavery. You've got the cup of deliverance. We are freed by God's judgment of the enemy. The cup of redemption. We are redeemed by God. And the cup of the kingdom. We are taken out as God's people. Now, here's what the thing. Is that the first two cups are drank prior to the Passover meal. They're drank first. The second two cups are drank at the end of the Passover meal. Okay, and again, you'll see this here in a couple weeks. But in Luke chapter 22, this is where Jesus, what we call the Last Supper, and they are having a Passover meal, a Seder meal, so to speak. Now, there's actually two different kinds. You can have one with lamb, one without lamb. That's irrelevant for what we're talking about here. But it's implied here because the first cup's not mentioned here. But Jesus talks about the second cup, and that's where this picks up. Now, to the Hebrew mind, to the Jewish person, they would know about the first cup because they know how this goes because they do it every year. So it's engraved in them. But in Luke 22 and verse 14, it says, When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Okay, so he hasn't mentioned the first cup. Verse 17, Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, when they take that second cup, they, they, they would say the statement, and you'll see this here in a, a couple weeks. Blessed are you, O God, who brings forth fruit from the vine. That is the giving of thanks. That is the second cup. That's how we know that this is the second cup, is because he gives thanks. It's not like, hey, thanks, Jesus, or thanks, God, for this. This is pretty good stuff. You know, I mean, they have uh, something they say. But he says, I will not drink of the, of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he says he won't drink of cup three or four until later. But in verse 19, he makes a statement, which is quite interesting. He says, and he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, wait, wait a minute, where are we at? He said, after supper, at the end of the meal, we're on that third cup, right? He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. His blood poured out is that third cup, okay? Now, here coming up, Jesus is getting ready. When this is over, where does he go? He goes to Gethsemane, right? And he's going to pray. He's going to get down on his knees. In fact, in verse 39, it says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came into the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, what cup is he talking about? You see, we always assume that that's just some cute saying. No, that third cup, the cup of redemption. Take this from me, if it, but your will be done. In other words, he's getting, he knows what's coming because it's, be, it's about to get bad. So he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That's what they say when they drink that third cup, the outstretched arm. God's will was done and Jesus was on the cross. That is the third cup of redemption. Now, the fourth cup will actually be drank in Revelation at the end when we're, we're with God and all of that. 
But in verse 28 of John chapter 19, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, but it put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is where he died, right? And he said to Telestai, it is finished. But what did they put that wine on? Hyssop. Now think back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourself according to your family and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is on the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike Egyptians, and when, when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the, in the, the door and not allow the destroyer to come into the houses to strike you. It's the very same thing that that blood was dipped on, that with the third cup of redemption, that wine, as soon as he drank that, he says, it is finished, because that fourth cup is after we are all with God in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's how this all comes to fulfillment. Now, when we look at this and we look at the Old Testament types, Moses is always a type of Christ, right? We, we know that. He's a deliverer. Uh, that's what he does. Egypt is symbolic of the world. Pharaoh, Satan, right? Leaven is always used idiomatically of sin. Get the sin out of your house, right? With the blood. The lamb himself is that redeem, redeemer. But the judgment is for those who have not applied the blood. Again, remember, doing everything else right, but not applying that blood meant that you were underneath the judgment. That's the key. That's the key to remember. And when we think about this, this is what we see, is we always see this cute thing here with the dot, right? And that's a little bit of hiss up there, and this was a big weed. I mean, it wasn't anything small, but it's like he's got a little paintbrush, right? That's not what it says. What did it say? Strike the lintel. I think it looked a lot more like this. Because when you would strike it, how would you strike it? Now, I can't prove that that's what it's going to look like, but I think it looked a lot like that. And if it looked like that, which is, again, is my belief and my preferences, then that gives a whole new meaning when we read John chapter 10 and verse 9 where he says, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will go in and out and find pasture. The very door that he said, you ply that blood to, you go in and you do not go out, and my judgment will be passed over you. You guys see how powerful these are? And you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm telling you guys, I mean, the more we get into this, the more you're going to realize how these are all pointing to Christ. And that Seder meal, I can't encourage you to be there enough. It will open your eyes to the things of God in a way that you've never experienced. But God is good. This is all hidden in the Passover. This is a, this is a party they have every year. Every year the Jews do this and they have no idea that their Passover lamb showed up even though John the Baptist told them. It's powerful. The word of God is powerful and sharper than two, any two-edged sword. I mean, it divides the thoughts of man from the thoughts of God. And people that just say that this is just another holy book, there's no way you just throw this together accidentally. There's no way. God's good, amen? Amen.